This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. I first met Tim Wise about 20 years ago. He was speaking at a Brooklyn church, uh, and I was dumbfounded. I have never never heard a white man speak so impassionately about race and racism. And I, when I got my radio show at Sirius XM, I was excited to have him on because this guy gets it. But what he also gets, which is the same thing that Jane Elliott and others, Robin DiAngelo, Aaron Belfer, and a few others that I have gone to to have these discussions. And I was obsessed in the first couple of years with having this discussion because I felt like if, if we're going to solve the problem of race and racism in America, we need white people on board. I've changed a little bit, but what I understand even more is that race is just a tool. It's a made-up construct. It doesn't really exist. But what we're really dealing with is power. And what we're really dealing with is figuring out how to check power so that people aren't oppressed. And so whether we talk about it in the, conf, you know, in the framework of racism, that matters not because the reality is Tim Wise is speaking up for something far greater. And so my interview with him, hope you enjoy it, but it reminds me of the Martin Niemöller, the Martin Niemöller po poem. It reminds me of the Martin Niemöller poem First They Came For, where he talks about first they came for the socialists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I didn't speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I didn't speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Now, Tim Wise is a Jew, but he understands probably more than the average quote-unquote white person that when there's no one to speak out, then everyone is vulnerable. And so I hope that you um, listen to this. But more importantly, the reason why I'm doing this podcast is because not everyone can afford SiriusXM or not everyone has SiriusXM. And then in order for these messages to actually catch fire and to make a difference, it requires you to do some work and share it with people who would not ordinarily tune in. I know you know some people out there in your workplace, in your family even, who are maybe a little closed-minded, not well-educated, not, not history buffs. They're not really uh, quote-unquote woke, but they need to get this message. You can share this link with them, and let's start a dialogue around what we need to do because ultimately, you know, black folks aren't the boogeyman, Mexicans aren't the boogeyman, Muslims aren't the boogeyman, Jews aren't the boogeyman. Uncheck power is the thing that's gonna destroy us in immorality. And it takes nothing f from you to treat a human being with respect and dignity. And that's what we're really talking about here. Everybody matters. Okay, so I hope you enjoyed this interview. Let me know what you think. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Karen Hunter. Till next time, here's my interview with Tim Wise. We're talking about Colin Kaepernick, who said that he will not be standing for the national anthem because there's still oppression among black people. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. To me, this is bigger than football, and it would be selfish on my part to look the other way. The, there are bodies in the street and people getting paid leave and getting away with murder. That was Colin Kaepernick. Um, people are upset. Too bad. All right. He deserves to have this opinion because he's an American and he's not wrong young man raised by white parents. Interesting. I wonder how Tim Wise feels about this. <laughs> uh, he's a friend of the show, of course. We've had him uh, numerous times. He's even filled in for me a couple of times. Let me welcome back to the show our brother, Tim Wise. Welcome. 
Hey, Karen, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, um, yep, give him his proper. <laughs> So, yes, I, w- I was also raised by white parents. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> in, in the great state of Tennessee, right? <laughs> yes, yes. And I also don't stand for the anthem. So you, wait, time out. You don't stand for the anthem? Well, sometimes I stand. I never I never recite the words. I don't sing it. I don't take a pledge of allegiance. I don't put my hand on my heart for the pledge. You're not supposed to for the anthem, contrary to popular belief. Um, no, I haven't in a very long time. Sometimes I'll stand just because you know, I might not want to call attention to myself in that moment. It's sort of a little showy, and I might not do that. But um, no, I haven't said the pledge, and I, and I haven't recited the anthem in a very long time for, for reasons similar to – Colin Kaepernick, but also, you know, the the national anthem was written by an overt white supremacist. There was another verse in that song originally that um, was blatantly racist, actually, uh, and was ultimately struck from the song. But its original intent actually talked about the treachery of black people during the period of enslavement. Um, And uh, the national anthem, I mean, the the Pledge of Allegiance, of course, is, I think, utterly preposterous for any nation to ask of its citizens. And I don't think that's any different here. The idea that you would pledge allegiance to a flag. Uh, or even to a country, suggest mm. uh, a level of nationalism that I think, you know, mm. ironically, we would condemn during the Cold War, you know, when Russian citizens, when Soviet citizens would do that. What would we say? We'd say, well, that's just they're brainwashed. It's propaganda. They just fill them full of propaganda. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the Chinese do that now, we say that. If the North Koreans do that now, we say that. Now, I'm not saying that the United States is or was the same as the Soviet Union, North Korea, or or China at the height of its tyranny many, many uh, generations ago. But if, if nationalism in those examples is carried to an extreme and we sort of cringe at the notion of loyalty in those places, then why do we assume uh, that that loyalty of that nature or nationalism is any better here. Well, the only reason we assume it is because this is our country and therefore it's better. But I'm sure the people in China say the same thing about China. Mm-hmm. The people in North Korea, some at least, really do believe that about their glorious leader, quote unquote. Uh, and the Soviets, no doubt, many of them also felt the same way. So I just think it's it's best if we ask a deeper question, and that is not so much about Colin Kaepernick, but why has professional athletics become an extension? of militarism and nationalism. Why is that? Well, I mean, I get let it. Me, let me turn it around. You know, we're talking with Tim Wise. He's the author of Dear White America, Letter to a New Minority, White Like Me, Colorblind. He's written a lot of books on the issue of race. Why do you think, and I, you know, I, I was jokingly saying, you know, Colin Kaepernick's, you know, a lot of the backlashes from jealous people because they're like, how dare you have an opinion when you're making millions of dollars playing a game I wish I could play and your hair is so beautiful and I hate you. You know, how dare you have an opinion on, on this thing called race? You know, just take your money and play football and shut the hell up. But right. why do why are people burning his jersey? Why do you think it's it's such a, a lightning rod for so many Americans? Well, I mean, one of course is the racial component of it. But even if it were not about race, even if he were making a statement about you know just uh, let's say opposition to U.S. foreign policy somewhere, um, I think probably the reaction would be similar. And that's because. Uh, of two things. I mean, number one is this hyper-nationalism and this devotion to patriotism without question, this sort of unthinking Americanism that doesn't allow for an actual celebration of what America supposedly stands for, which is indeed the right to protest one's grievances against the state. Mm -hmm. So he's actually doing an incredibly American thing, whether one agrees with it or not. Uh, But a second reason, I think, why it's happening is because we, uh, particularly when it comes to race, white Americans, and maybe some folks of color as well, sort of think 
think, but especially white folks do, that if you're a millionaire athlete or a millionaire, you know, entertainer, or if you're Oprah Winfrey or whatever, that you don't have the right to complain about racism anymore because you obviously have fought your way out of it. You know, you'll remember famously uh, back many years ago, I think it was probably around 04, 05, maybe 06, Oprah Winfrey talked about um, the time that she had been, I guess she was in Paris, and she was trying to buy uh, a gift, I think, for Tina Turner. Tina Turner at, at Hermes. At, at Hermes, right. Mm-hmm. And and she talked about feeling as though they they closed the shop early on her, and she wondered, she said, she wondered aloud, you know, was that potentially about race? Now, as I recall, she came to the conclusion that it probably wasn't, but just her speculation that it could have been about that sent people into an uproar because how could Oprah Winfrey possibly be the victim of race? And even if she is, she has enough money, she could just buy the store because that sort of ignores – the problem is that ignores what racism is. It's this dehumanization that you can't buy your way out of. You know, Madam C.J. Walker became a millionaire in like 1911, first African-American millionaire, first woman millionaire in this country. And I'm sure there were probably people back then who said, well, if Adam C.J. Walker can make it, what's wrong with the rest of you black people? Why mm-hmm. are you complaining? And I'm sure if she had complained about lynching, which was happening every week in this country at that time, somebody would have said, well, shut up and sell your beauty products. You seem to be doing fine. Mm. But it sort of misses the point. And so I think it's based on hypernationalism, but also this racial resentment that says, Anyone who's making a lot of money, but especially if it's a person of color making a lot of money, is supposed to just shut up and be a gladiator for us on the football field. And the minute that they step out of line and question things, you know, John Carlos and Tommy Smith famously had their careers ended and love for them ended after 1968, the Mexico City Olympics, because of what they did. Uh, and we're still having that same debate. And here we are. I mean, that was the year that they, that, that act of protest in Mexico City happened two weeks after I was born. And here we are still having that conversation 48 years later. At the end of the day, though, the same people burning Colin Kaepernick's jerseys are the same people who were praising Muhammad Ali when he passed away last month. The same people who uh, probably have pictures of Ali, you know, and and they embrace this man who, you know. Well, they embraced him when he could no longer talk. Let, let's let's be very clear about when America embraced Muhammad Ali. In America as a whole did not embrace Muhammad Ali when he still had a voice and when he was able to speak in that voice to condemn the actions of this country, both with regard to people of color overseas, but also in this country. It was only when he was stricken with the disease that took his voice from him and made him no longer a dangerous black man that America decided to embrace him. Um, and of course, a lot of America, Donald Trump included, apparently forgot that he was Muslim because you'll recall when Trump started his campaign, he said, where are the Muslim athletes? Apparently forgetting about Jabbar and forgetting about uh, Muhammad Ali and forgetting about a lot of folks. So we, we effectively deracialized Muhammad Ali when he could no longer remind us that he was a proud and strong black man. And, you know, and I think that is a huge because I remember as a kid, I loved Ali. My dad loved Ali. But there were a lot of people uh, at that time who hated him, who pulled for Joe Frazier in those fights, not because uh, Frazier was necessarily the the embodiment of right wing nationalism by any stretch, but because he was the anti Ali. He was the one who did not use his voice to condemn the actions of his government. He was to them, you know, this sort of deracialized fighter. And and that was why a lot of folks preferred him to uh, to Ali, even though they were both obviously great fighters. 
Hey, this is Karen Hunter. I remember the first time I tried HelloFresh. It was a chili satan. I was doing something vegetarian. I had never heard of satan before, but it was delicious. And it looked just like chili, but it was vegetables, right? And now I'm doing even more vegetables because I love to eat healthy and I also love to cook. And HelloFresh makes both of those things really easy. So you can sign up right now at HelloFresh.com slash KH80. That's my code, KH80, and you get $80 off your first four boxes or $20 off each of your first four boxes at HelloFresh.com, KH80. And what are they cooking now? Oh, they have heirloom tomato flatbreads with pesto, fresh mozzarella, and balsamic greens. And what's really cool, step-by-step instructions, pre-measured ingredients, fresh ingredients, comes right to your door. You don't have to worry about the supermarket and standing in line right in your door. So you spend less time planning and grocery shopping, more time doing the things you love. And all of these meals come together in about 30 minutes or less. They even have family plans. There's something for everyone. Classic meals, veggie meals, family dinners, all of that at HelloFresh.com slash KH80. Sign up today. It's delicious. I love it. You'll love it too. Let me know what you think. This is a kind of a superficial conversation because at the end of the day, you know, Colin Kaepernick stand and I pray that, you know, we've, we've seen it with Dwayne Wade and, sure. and uh, you know, LeBron James at the ESPN Awards, Carmelo Anthony and Chris Paul. We've seen this iteration of athletes, you know, walking in the footsteps of Jim Brown and, and, yeah. and Bill Russell and Muhammad Ali. We've, we're seeing an emergence of that. And I'm really, really proud and happy because I believe to whom much is given, much is required. You don't yeah. have the luxury to sit on the sidelines, no matter how much money you're making if you're black in America. That right. said, I don't know what move this is going to make with Colin Kaepernick making this stand. But when I look at the killing of Dwayne Wade's cousin, Nakia Aldridge, over, over uh, on Friday, and then I see the tweets, yeah. I, I, I know that there's a disconnect. And then there's an easy rush to, well, the black-on-black crime and the look at the blacks killing themselves. And, and why are you guys always complaining? You kill yourselves more than anybody else and blah, 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 blah. You know, I, I, I feel the need with this platform to set the record straight. When we, right. when, you know, black people are not being shot every day walking down the streets of Chicago. I just did the math. 800,000 right. uh, blacks live in Chicago. 372 are killed. That's like right. a minuscule percentage. Now, right. one is too much. But right, of course. We're not talking about people being shot every single day in Chicago. Well, and not only not only is he exaggerating. I mean, first of all, let's be honest. Chicago has become a, a punchline for right wingers in this country. It has become a prop that they can use to put forward their racial anxieties and resentments. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't spend time in the south side of Chicago. And I should point out. The folks in the south side, one of the, the areas with the higher crime rate, the people there who are trying to do stuff about the crime rate are the very people white folks hate, like Jeremiah Wright. Father Flager and, right. and, and even Minister Farrakhan. I mean, these are folks who do things in the community around the issue of crime, and white folks don't like them either. So let's just be real clear. Let's also be clear that when uh, Donald Trump harkens back, as he's tried to harken back to the mantle of the Reagan era, he's trying to you know paint himself as as this you know a second coming of Reagan. And when I asked him the other day, finally somebody got around, I guess, to trying to figure out what "Make America Great Again" means and when was America great. And he talked about the '80s because everything was so much better in the '80s. Well, interestingly, crime was far worse in the 1980s. If you look at the FBI data or the Department of Justice data, there are two different uh, places that compile data on crime in this country. Either one of those 
data sources, you will see that violent crime, not only in places like Chicago, but all around the country, uh, it is now actually 40 to 50 percent below the levels that it was at that time. And that is not only in general and in Chicago, it is specifically in black communities. And I should point out, contrary to popular belief, the black homicide rate, that is to say the rate per capita at which black males are killed in this country, and like you said, even one is too many, but per capita, the homicide rate for black men was higher in this country in 1950 than it is today. And it was considerably higher in 1970 than it is today. So when we talk about, oh, crime is out of control and it's getting worse, yes, there's been a one-year blip, and criminologists say we don't know if that's a trend or not. But for the last 20, 30, 40 years, really going back to the early 70s, there has been a uh, sort of up and down and a steady decline since about 1989, 90, or 91. That's the truth. That's the truth for black folks in Chicago. It's the truth for folks all over the country. And I think it is a, a perfect evidence of right wing racial, mm-hmm. you know, demagogic politics that Trump would try to play upon these fears, because the reality is most people don't know the data that I just shared with you, right. and especially white folks. If you ask white folks, they would tell you that they believe most black people are poor. Most black people live in inner cities. Most right. black people right. are either victimized by crime or doing crime. And of course, none of it's true. But right. that's the imagery that has been crafted for 30 or 40 years. Donald Trump, just the latest version of that. So how do we so I do it every day, you know, and I talk about, you know, our community from a, you know, I'm, I'm swinging a pendulum back to the other direction. But how do we meet these dog whistles and these blatant propaganda? Because there's a propaganda, purposeful propaganda agenda to paint a group of people in a very, very specific way. And it's on purpose, right? right? Um, how, do, how do we combat? What language do we use to fight this? Because we have to fight it. I feel like we have to be as vigilant as they are to denigrate right. us. Well, there are two things. I mean, one is obviously, you know, lies have to be have to be responded to with facts and fiction has to be responded to with 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 documentary. Um, But the problem and we know this from the social science research, particularly brain science, is that unfortunately, facts are usually not what make people um, move in one direction or another politically. So I can give you, it's like with climate change, right? I, I, it doesn't matter what the science says. The people who have an ideological and or emotional need to deny what all the science tells us is true. In fact, what the research is, you give people the, the data, the proof, the scientific studies, and they not only don't change their mind, they dig in harder in their own beliefs because they have a need. So the question then we have to get at, and I'm not saying that I have the answer to this, but this is the right question is what is the need that is being fulfilled by this racial scapegoating and stereotyping? What is the emotional thing that white America, for instance, gets out of believing these things about Mm. black people? Because if we can figure out what that emotional need is, then the question becomes, well, is there another kind of politic that we could put (laughs) forward that would fulfill that need? Scratch that itch. Right, exactly. When when I hear people call up, because we uh, occasionally will have somebody named Cletus call up with the bull crap, right? You don't even care if black people kill each other, so why do you care? You you want us gone. So if we're killing each other, why do you care? Why do you even, why is it, and they don't have an answer for that. So that's where I start. Like, why do you even care when you don't care about us as a group of people to begin with that we're killing each other? That's your narrative. Why do you care? Well, these, and these are the same people who, if a cop kills a black person, they will, they will automatically say, well, you know, 
that person had a record and they were no angel. But obviously, most black-on-black crime, or for that matter, white-on-white crime, is also done by people and against people who weren't angels. Most criminal victims probably do have records in many cases. Many of them, you know, some of it might be gang violence. So you're right. When someone says, well, you know, police are killing people, but they're not the best people. Well, the same is true with gang warfare, but they act all concerned, right? They act all concerned, and they're not concerned. And that's, that's why I say Chicago has become a punchline or a prop for these people. It's not a real living, breathing place in their mind. It's just this sort of repository of white anxiety. It's this living, breathing, you know, manifestation of white fear and anxiety. Uh, and it always has served that purpose. You know, white folks, uh, you were mentioning uh, before I came on, I was I was hearing you talking about Trump, I guess, going to Detroit, right? And um, the, the narrative around Detroit, I heard someone the other day on television talking about, you know, well, white people left Detroit because the black mayor told them that they should leave Detroit and, and black crime had gotten out of control. Actually, white flight in Detroit began in the 50s at the first sign that black folks were trying to move into suburban areas around the city at the very first sign of any black presence outside the urban core, uh, white folks started leaving. By the time the riots happened in Detroit in 1967, that white flight was almost entirely complete. It didn't happen after Coleman Young became mayor. It happened mostly before that. And you had certain outer ring suburbs of or towns around Detroit, like Dearborn, that had been racially segregated uh, for 40 years. Dearborn had a mayor, white guy, who used to actually go down south to teach white folks in the south how to keep black people in line because he was such an effective racist. There were virtually no black people in that community for 40 years while he was the mayor. So Detroit's history of white flight wasn't in response to black wrongdoing. It wasn't that the black folks moved in and everything went to hell. The reality is that black folks began to move in, then white folks freaked out, started running away. That is what hurt the community economically, because when white folks left and they had more money, that deprived the community of resources. It wasn't, you know, people always say, well, you know, blacks move in, the property values go down. No, the property values didn't go down because black people, by definition, demand raises property values. So if people are coming in, property values would be going up if white folks just wouldn't flip out and run. It's the running that creates the vacuum economically. That's what then generated the the, the crime problems in places like Detroit. So even when crime is a problem, and none of us are saying it's not, it has these systemic and structural roots that unless we talk about those, and of course the Donald Trumps of the world don't want to talk about them, uh, and a lot of Democrats don't. Well, he's not capable of talking about them because what's his reference? He has no experience in this area whatsoever. So how do you talk about something that you have zero understanding of? Well, clearly no understanding. I mean, New York, you know, in the in the 1980s, uh, which I guess he thinks was a better place. And he thinks <laughs> it's horrible. I mean, it's absurd, right? The, the New York of the 1980s had a far higher crime problem. The New York of the 1970s, when he was really coming up and going to Studio 54, whatever, was a far more dangerous place than it is today. And even at that time, you know, we know what his views of the criminal justice system are. We know because he wrote that full page ad, you know, calling for the death penalty for the Central Park Five uh, and, and refusing to this day to acknowledge that. He had it wrong, as did the city of New York, as did the police, as did the prosecutors, as did the court system, uh, refuses to believe that he's wrong. So it's clear that that bringing facts to Donald Trump will not matter. Um, the question is, can we do the kind of mobilization and the organizing in this country, not necessarily in the short term, because let's be honest, 
un, uh, you know, dislodging people's factual inaccuracies in the course of a few months before a presidential election is almost impossible. Right. When, when I did the work against David Duke in Louisiana in 90 and 91, you know, yeah, I would love to go out there in that six month time frame and explain to people why everything they thought about affirmative action, welfare and black crime was wrong. But I knew I didn't have time for that. In the short run, all we could hope to do, and I think it's true in this race, is make it very clear that Donald Trump is is exacerbating these racial tensions and bringing empowerment to some of the most fascistic, really dangerous forces in this country, forces that he frankly doesn't control. You know, I've, I've been asked many times by folks, well, you think Donald, Donald Trump is a, is a racist? And I think that's the wrong question. It's like asking whether a drug dealer is also an addict. My thing is, I don't care if you get high on your own supply. I know what you deal. You know, mm. and he's dealing, he's mm. dealing in mm. the politics of racism, whether or not he believes any Ooh. of it doesn't matter. Tim Wise, Donald Trump's a race dealer. And you're absolutely right about the dealer. Oh, that was powerful. I appreciate feel, you. Feel free to steal it. I'm, I'm <laughs> going to. to. I'll give okay. you credit, maybe. All right. All right. Tim, Tim Wise, thank you so much. Thank you, Karen. Author of Dear America, White Like Me, Colorblind. You got to check him out. That was my interview with Tim Wise, Timothy J. Wise, author of a million and one books on the issue of race and social injustice. He's an amazing human being. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, And till next time, follow me on Twitter at Karen Hunter. Again, I'm answering questions so you can ask me anything on Twitter at Karen Hunter with the hashtag podcast. Till next time.